privilege to uh, bring the word this morning, and yet we're in uh, the midst of a topic that I go, I don't know if I really want to preach today, um, but I will. So we're in our seven shared member values series. We've just been working through this series, and, and we've come to submission. And if we're honest, as uh, Drew opened this portion last week, if we're honest, this topic is challenging, to say the least. Uh, There is a lot that has been written on submission, especially within the church, and there has been a lot that's been misunderstood about this topic. And I do not presume for one moment that I'm the one who alone can untangle this dilemma. It's not me. So we are asking God to open his word to us. I do hope that as we look at scripture together over these next several weeks, that we will try to quiet some of those voices. That, that we'll try to pull out from some of uh, the reading that maybe you've done or the sermons that maybe you've listened to, the, the opinions, the commentaries that you've read, that, that you try to pull out of that just a little bit and hear from the Lord. Now, that is not to say that those opinions and commentaries haven't spoken truth. I just want to come at this subject with as few preconceived notions as possible, as few assumptions as possible, so that if the Lord is calling us, telling us, speaking to us something that maybe we haven't heard, we'd be open to it. Uh, This morning, um, I'm going to preach on a text I've never wanted to preach on, 1 Corinthians 15, We'll start in verse 20, but we're really going to camp out in verses 24 to 28. And the reason that I've never really wanted to preach on this passage is because it's a representative problem passage on both sides of the popular debate that rages around submission. It's a passage that speaks to uh, the Trinity, and really it is the Trinity that causes a problem, I believe, for both sides of the debate. So I want to look at this text, and I want to try to make uh, three observations about this text. Uh, three observations, those being that both sides of this popular debate around submission, being authority and equality, are inadequate to capture the essence of submission based in the Trinity. Authority and equality, they both fall short in trying to capture the essence of submission. And I think when the church gets split oftentimes between two camps, both camps are inadequate to really garner the essence of what God is trying to teach. There's truth in both camps, and there's error in both camps. And, and our task as we contend for our faith, as we do what Tim was talking about, as we test the spirits, as we cling to what is good, it's a challenge when there's two camps that have been very loud for a very long time. Uh, Next, I I just want to look at whatever our definition of submission is, it must be applied consistently. 
So, so whatever definition we come to, and I'm going to propose one this morning, but however we look at submission, it actually has to be com- applied consistently in, in the areas that the Bible calls us to submit in. And then finally, submission is best understood in the metaphor of head and body and in the context of ordering our lives in a way that stimulates love and cooperation over competition, resulting in the lifting of the other and the glory of God. Now, that's a mouthful, I know. But I think what we'll see in this text is that Submission is really about cooperation more than competition, though I think that this conversation devolves into competition quite easily. So my hope is that as we move into these next few weeks and know that it's not just this week, today I hope to just make some observations along these lines and to present a definition, a working definition. Next week we'll begin to apply it into areas of everyday life. I was going to say, as the church scattered, but that whole metaphor of church scattered, church gathered, puts too much emphasis on this building. And so in our everyday life, how does submission play out? And then in our life together as a fellowship, how does submission play out? So that's the next three weeks. Today we'll try to get a definition. Next week we'll look at how that can apply in everyday life. And then on the 22nd, we'll look at how that applies to our fellowship as believers in Christ. And then on the 29th, we'll pray about it and uh, continue to seek that together. So I I just want to pray again. I know that we've already prayed. I just feel the weight of this message, so I want to pray again. Would you just pray with me? Father, I pray that you would multiply your grace to us this morning. Grace that would give us the ability to forbear with one another as we search for biblical truth and, as your word says, as we earnestly contend for the faith once delivered. Father, I pray that we would not do anything out of selfishness or vain conceit. But, Father, with humility, with that mind of Christ, that we would consider others better than ourselves. So may the Spirit guide us this morning as we come to your word so that we would be Spirit-filled in the things we say and in how we hear. Help us now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's just jump into our text. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is... Uh, one of those chapters that <clears throat> Paul's coming in for a landing at the end of one of his letters. Uh, he's covered a lot of territory in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> and a lot of territory that has to be wrestled with. 1 Corinthians is not an easy book to understand. It's not an easy book to put in its context. And yet Paul is coming in for a landing and he comes in. He begins his approach with probably his clearest declaration of the gospel. So that's how chapter 15 opens, with this wonderful declaration of the gospel ending in the verified resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's as if we're picking up with the rest of the story. So last week, Drew preached from Philippians chapter 2. 
And he encouraged us to have this mind of Christ who did not count equality with God something to be clung to, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, of a slave, and he humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. But good news, folks, he didn't stay dead. Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin, and he rose again to validate his authority to do that. And so our text begins this way, Paul's saying, but in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. This is really good news. Christ is alive. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. All right, so I just want to pause for a second. And if you're newer to church, if you're newer to our fellowship, then welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And we would, we would love to get to know you better. You can stop by our welcome desk. Uh, we have a gift for you. We'd just like to get some information so that we can stay connected. But beyond that, I just want you to hear that Jesus died on your behalf. That in Adam, and we are all in Adam, we have sinned. We are guilty of sin. And the penalty of sin is death. In Adam, we're all in Adam. All die. That's the bad news. But the good news is, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is one of these wonderful blessings of knowing Jesus. That he makes us alive to himself. He brings us back from the dead. He infuses us with new life. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. What does it mean to belong to Jesus Christ? I'm so glad you asked. It simply means that you have come to a place where you can acknowledge your sin. That you have offended a holy God, which means you have to acknowledge that there is a holy God. And that God in his triune essence is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son came as a perfect propitiation, a perfect payment for your sin and for mine. And so he laid down his life. He shed his own blood to pay your debt. And then he rose again to life so that we could have life. And belonging to Christ is that simple acknowledgement that, yes, I believe that's what I need. And that Jesus alone is what I need. And that Jesus alone becomes my life. Not a part of my life, not an add-on to my life, but Jesus alone becomes my life. That means that we, we, we don't just speak his name, but we begin to live like Jesus. There's hints of submission in that. There's hints of a, a, a laying down. There's hints of a, a definition there, but we're not quite there yet. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
Now, this is an interesting picture. We have to get this in our heads because Jesus, who was in the form of God, the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. So he humbled himself. Last week we learned that he submitted to the Father. And so we go, okay, so if he submits to the Father, then how does this play out? Well, he submits to the Father only to bring back to the Father this kingdom. And then the the Father puts all of this under his feet. And so it's almost this circle in the Trinity that's at work in the world. Now we get this next verse. It says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so everything is under Christ. Everything now has been submitted to Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So these texts are largely what drive the two paradigms that the popular arguments fall into. An authoritative paradigm, which stacks God the Trinity on top of one another. And so it presents us with a hierarchy. It presents us with this idea that God the Father is the boss that Jesus the Son is uh, subservient to him and that the Spirit is subservient to them. And yet, if we push that too far, it begins to threaten the Trinity because there is equality in the Trinity even after the Incarnation. The Son is eternally the second person of the Trinity forever and ever. Amen. And so this hierarchical model has to be pulled out to say, well, this is just the functional reality. It has to be given other definitions in order to explain how that doesn't threaten the Trinity. And I don't think we need to try to explain it that way. I think there's a better way to explain what's happening in the submission of the Son to the Father. Now, the the other side of the argument says, okay, the Trinity is equal. There is equality with the Trinity, and so they typically stack the Trinity horizontally and say, well, God the Father perfectly submits to the Son who perfectly submits to the Father and the Spirit perfectly submits and there's this uh, equality among them. They're all submitting to one another except Jesus clearly says, hey, the Father is greater than I in the Gospel of John in chapter 5. And he says, I've come to do the will of the Father. And so there is this submission of Jesus to the Father. So it's not that they are just equal. Jesus says, hey, it's good for you that I'm going to go away because when I go away, I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to ask him to send the Spirit to you. So the Spirit, too, is submissive to the Father, that the Spirit comes to indwell every believer. And so, again, we begin to threaten the functioning, the, uh, the makeup of the Trinity when we either just stack the Godhead vertically or we try to reduce it horizontally. We're good at trying to oversimplify God. And it's good that we can't simplify God. So the first thing I just want to note is that The current paradigms, 
the, the current conversation, the popular conversation, is inadequate to define submission. Okay, well, we need to think beyond those. We, we, we need to look at those and go, okay, we can take something from those, but we can't just buy into those wholeheartedly and end up in one of those two camps. Those camps are inadequate to get at the true essence of submission. They're oversimplifications. Here's the picture, I believe, of the Godhead. I was trying to find a picture with just three people in it because the Trinity is three and not four. Um, But I couldn't find, and I didn't want to take the time to try to Photoshop one out, especially because, you know, two legs and it'd get weird. Submission, as we'll start to build out our definition, is a, a, a willing ordering of your life under. Submission is this. Hey, you know what? I, I want to give you a hand up. Okay, and when we see Jesus, he's not, he's not lifting God up because God's fallen and he can't get up, but he is continually lifting up the Father. He's continually pointing people to the Father to say, look at him. Look at him who is up there. My Father in heaven, he's the one that deserves glory. I'm doing his will. He's continually lifting up the Father. And then what we'll see at the end of this morning is that the Father, when he puts everything under the feet of the Son except himself, reaches down to the Son and pulls him up to share his place in glory. So there's not a good way to try to picture this Because I think humanly and earthly, because of gravity, it's impossible. But submission in its proper context of the head and the body, we can't separate these two parts of being submissive and being the one who is ordered under. But there is this relationship between the two that continually has this upward momentum in relationship. Okay, I've blown your minds. Let's just go on to another observation about this text. Whatever our definition of submission, it must be applied consistently. We don't have the luxury to say, I will submit in this area, but I will not submit in this area when the Bible very clearly calls for submission in a variety of areas. And and so we have to come to a definition that we can actually live out with consistency. So I'll I'll just give you an illustration from the recent past. And I I give this illustration purely for illustrative uh, means. I preached a message on men and women in the church. And I received communication from both sides about that sermon. Either, hey, you went too far to say that women shouldn't submit to men, or you didn't go far enough. Okay, I got uh, messages from both sides of that debate. And I go, okay. But I also got messages from both sides about the debate about how do we relate to our governing officials in relation to COVID. Like, should we just rebel, or are we doing enough? And so whatever our definition 
of submission is, it has to be consistent in the marriage relationship where God calls us to submit, in the family dynamic where God calls for submission, in the workplace where God calls for submission, in government authorities where God calls for submission, in the church where God calls for submission, and with one another where God calls for submission. The same word is used in all of those places. And so we have to come to a definition where we can live it out with consistency. So on one side of the argument, this text becomes uh, an argument for uh, Christ's eternal subjugation to the Father. Now that's a different word than submit. Subjugation means that there's an imposing on the one submitting. There's a demanding of the one who's submitting, and that is not the case with the Son. The Son, eternally, even before the incarnation, has always been willing to submit to the Father. So now we can start to get at a working definition. Submission is the willing, consistent, and active ordering of our life under another in order to lift up according to God's purpose and plan and for his eternal glory. So we see in Christ that there is this willingness to submit to God the Father for all eternity. So in creation, where he is um, God, just as he is today, The Son is participating with the Father in a submissive way. He is willingly, and now we're starting to see consistently, and actively ordering his life under another. It's interesting that submission is used in the middle voice. Uh, Do you remember what that means? We talked about the middle voice in Greek and how that means that it's not an action that we initiate or it's not an action that someone initiates on us, but it is an action that we willingly and actively participate in the results of that someone else initiated. Submission is in this middle voice, and so we could say that God initiated creation in the triune nature of God and that Jesus Christ willingly participated in that. Now, does that mean that God is better or superior to Jesus? No, I don't think it does. Does that present a hierarchy? No, it presents a cooperative. Now, does that mean that they are um, equal across the plane and that they're submitting one to another perfectly, equally, all the time? No. Jesus Christ is functioning willingly in response to the Father's will. He's ordered his life under the Father in order to lift up the Father. Now, the Father, again, every metaphor is going to break down. The Father doesn't need to be propped up. But Jesus gladly goes, man, look at the Father. He's amazing. And in all of that, God gets the glory. Jesus then humbles himself 
by laying aside willingly. God did not demand it. God did not uh, uh, manipulate it. God did not have this uh, passive, aggressive expectation of Jesus to go and take on flesh and become the Redeemer. No. Jesus willingly lays aside all that he has the rights to and takes on flesh to the degree that he becomes a child. He's born into the world and he begins to grow up and Jesus has to submit to his parents and he willingly submits to Joseph and Mary. We see this play out in other relationships. We don't really see Jesus on the job. We know that he worked with his father. We assume that he worked with his father. We don't know of really any other job, and so we don't have a picture of him relating to a boss. But we do have pictures of him relating to governing officials. He's submissive. That doesn't mean he's subservient. That doesn't mean that he's less than. It means that he willingly, consistently, actively is ordering his life. He's putting his life in order in a way that's going to lift up the other according to God's purpose and plan for the glory of God. Jesus willingly and consistently and actively orders his life under the Father. Even when he rises from the dead and he conquers all enemies, even death, and he brings it back to God and presents it, and God goes, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to put all of that under you. It's going to all be in subjection under you. Jesus goes, oh, I will willingly and consistently and actively submit to you, even in that. That does not make Jesus subordinate or less than or inferior to God the Father. Jesus makes a choice to willingly, consistently, actively order his life under the Father according to God's purpose and plans and for his glory. Submission in all that it may be, is willing, it's consistent, it's active, and it's orderly. Do you see the order in the text? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus, he must reign on the throne until God the Father has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He's put it all in order under his feet. That's the way it is supposed to be. That's the way it's been intended to be. That everything is in order under Christ's rule and reign. But he who puts it all under his feet is accepted. Jesus, again, willingly, consistently, 
actively orders his life under the Father in, in order to lift him up, in order to bring him praise, in order to uh, make much of the Father according to his purpose and plan so that God gets the glory. Third observation. Submission is best understood in the metaphor of head and body and in the context of ordering our lives in a way that stimulates love and cooperation over competition, resulting in the lifting of the other and the glory of God. Submission is best understood in the metaphor of the body. Um, The body, which we will see, um, comes up many times as we talk about submission. And the figure of head and body come up many times uh, as we talk about the subject of submission. So just a few chapters before this in 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 3, it says that God is the head of Christ. So in in those camps, uh, those two camps, typically head is defined as authority. If you're in the hierarchy camp, head is defined as authority, or head is defined as source, uh, the impetus for, uh, if you're looking at more of an equality model. Um, head, uh, one, of, one of those big names, Wayne Grudem, in the camp of authority, he did this extensive study on the word head. Not just in the scriptures, but um, in all Greek literature, because he was trying to prove a point. And so he studied intently 2,386 uses of those words, of head. And, and what he concluded was, um, there's, there's really just a tiny percentage, like two instances, where that word for head, that Greek word for head, uh, means source. So he kind of goes, okay, source is kind of out of the conversation. Now, there's still a lot of commentators, there's a lot of theologians that still are in this camp of source. But Wayne Grudem, um, he, he said, okay, it, it can't be source because it's hardly ever used as source. But what he didn't say was how often it's used as authority. 2% of the time. 200 times out of 2,000 times it's used as authority. The vast majority of times that that word is used, even in Scripture, is for the head. For the physical head. And so when we start to look at the metaphor of head and body, it begins to tell us something about submission. The first thing you might notice about head and body is it's really bad if they get separated. Okay, you don't want that to happen. Okay, head and body are meant to, they are made to be inseparably, intimately connected. They don't work otherwise. And and so you have this cooperation within the Father and the Son as the Son is submitting to the Father and lifting up the Father and as the Father is reaching down and pulling up the Son. You have this interaction of head and body. You have this healthy thing going on. In that same text uh, where it tells us that God is the head of Christ, it also tells us that Christ is the head of every man. We're going to get into that next week. And that man is the head of every woman. Okay, And, And there's some things that we need to wrestle with because God is very clear about head. But it gets pretty muddy 
when we just start to talk about authority or source and we miss the metaphor of a connected, intimately connected body. So the Father and the Son are functioning in this intimate relationship. That if either part is not present, you you lose the whole. So Jesus willingly, consistently, actively orders his life under the Father because the Father is head. The Father is that part of the body. And we really don't know what that means. Some people have said, well, that means it's the brain. And then the body is the heart. And I go, well, the body's way more complicated than just that. And so is the brain. We, we don't know what head actually means. We're supposed to see the whole metaphor of there's this interconnection between the two. But we can see how they interact with one another. We can see played out in the Trinity in the the work of Christ and the church, who in Ephesians is head and body, in the work of husband and wife, in the work of man and woman, in the work of Christ and every man, we can see how those two function. So while we might not be able to define head accurately or completely, we can see how head and how body function. The way body functions is it willingly, consistently, actively, orders its life under. That does not mean you lose your will. It it means that you conform your will. You put your will in order. It, It doesn't mean that you lose your rights. It means that you order your rights under. It doesn't mean that you lose your opinion or uh, your decision-making ability. It means that you order that under the head. And that's what Christ does. He could have called 10,000 angels to pull him off the cross. He, He could have brought the kingdom right then and there. But he ordered his life and his death and his resurrection, and his eternal being under the Father, willingly, consistently, actively. So that the Father is lifted up. That's the body's job, okay, to lift up the one that they're under. Now, can we live that out consistently? Well, we'll get into that next week, but I think we can. Even when governments seem bad or bosses seem bad or a husband is not living up to his godly calling, I think it is still possible to order our lives under that in such a way that we are lifting them up. According to God's plan and purpose, there's purpose in hard things, right? There's purpose in suffering. That's how God conforms us into the image most of the time, the image of Jesus Christ most of the time. There's purpose in that according to his purpose and plan for his glory. Do you remember how um, Philippians chapter 2 ends? Oh, all for the glory of God. That's a section that Drew preached on last week. All for the glory of God. How, how, How does this one end? How does... Our section today, 1 Corinthians 15, end. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That's that God may be glorified in everything. So we can see how the body is to function. Next week we'll look at those instances where we can define the body. Who's the body? And why does that matter? But before we go today, I want to also say we can see how the head functions. Because the body is not in competition with one another. And I just find that those two arguments create competition. The argument of authority, people rebel against and then people push harder down. It, it results in competition. The idea of equality, it, it results in competition. And that's not the will of God. The body is to cooperate. And that's what we see in the Godhead. And so um, in Revelation chapter 4, as John is looking into heaven, he sees something in particular. He, he sees a throne, and the one seated on the throne is this radiant being, and it's surrounded by the elders and the spirits, and there's a lot going on. And then somebody goes, but who can open the scroll? And he sees a lamb, and it's very clear that he sees it between the throne and the elders. So Jesus is not on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. Jesus has willingly, consistently, actively ordered his life under the Father in order to lift up the Father, in order to go, hey, Dad, I got this. Give me the scroll. According to God's purpose and plans for God's glory. But then what do we see in Revelation 22? Revelation 22, we see something different. When John looks into heaven then, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, It's Revelation 21. In verse 5, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these things are trustworthy and true. It is verse, uh, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me uh, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. So what he sees in, in Revelation 22 is that God and the Lamb are both on the throne. This is, this is good news because what it means is that Jesus, he comes and he presents all, the whole kingdom. He's defeated every enemy. And God goes, thank you. I'm going to put that under your feet. Everything's under your feet. Everything's in submission to you, except for God the Father. But then God the Father reaches down, and he goes, but come and sit on my throne with me. God is eager to share. God is eager to include. And so he he doesn't leave Christ in subjugation or subjection, he pulls him up and he goes, hey, sit on my throne. Sit on my throne. God has included Jesus in some of the most incredible things as creator, as redeemer, as eternal judge. 
God is not in competition. The Father is not in competition with the Son. The Son is not in competition with the Spirit. They are working together, and there is perfect submission. The Son orders his life under the Father. So in all of that, I went, well, where's the Spirit? Because the body is just head and body and Where'd the spirit go? So this, this was interesting to me, and I, I haven't really teased this out all the way. But the spirit is sent to indwell God's people. So, so the spirit's with us. And so I go, well, does the spirit get to sit on the throne as well? So uh, Revelation chapter 3 says, and if you understand um, Revelation, um, the chapters 2, 3, and 4 are letters to the church. And then we kind of come back and, and start again. And so this is kind of the end of those letters. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, The one who conquers, I'm going to start in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown." The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on, on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has ears, let him hear. Down in verse 21, he says, The one who conquers, that one that he's brought into heaven, He says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We'll get this picture of head and body again next week as Christ is head of the church. But God reaches down to Christ who is willingly, consistently, actively ordering his life under the father and he pulls him up and he says, sit with me. And Jesus does the same thing for us. And in that, we see the triune God seated on the throne. Father, who has elevated the Son, and Spirit, who has elevated the believer to sit together with God. Submission is crucial. If we don't work at understanding it, and it is going to take work, then we really don't get to the next two values. Because if we can't wholeheartedly embrace submission, if we can't consistently live that out, what gets hindered is our maturity and our testimony. And so this is critical, that we come to a good understanding that we can wholeheartedly embrace, that we can live out with consistency. And I think from Jesus we see that submission is this willing, consistent, and active ordering of life under another to lift him up according to the purposes and plans of God and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the pictures you've given us. Thank you that 
that you give us clear pictures of head and body. Father, you show us in Christ what it is to submit. And you show us in yourself what it is to be a good head. And as one body, that is a beautiful and powerful synergistic reality, Lord. Father, help us to understand submission. Father, I pray that it would it would stir in us cooperation, that it would lead us to maturity, and Lord, that in that we would be more unified than ever before. So we pray for your spirit to do this work in us. In Christ's name, amen.